Hello and welcome to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins in partnership with Briefcase.News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media monitoring. This is the second part of our two-part episode on lawfare and oligarchs in the London courts. And we are once again joined by Mark Stevens, who's acted for all sorts of people from Arthur Scargill to Julian Assange, and is well known for his human rights work, especially in the Commonwealth, and is presently acting in the Yorkshire Cricket Club case. We are also joined by David Hooper, a vastly experienced media solicitor, a former partner of Carter Ruck. He acted in cases like Spycatcher in the 1980s, and he too has experience of Russia. So we're in the hands of two great experts. The Ukraine invasion and, of course, the sanctioning of a lot of Russian oligarchs has led to a sort of glasnost in this whole business. Maybe we could call it a slapnost. And the government has not only announced a review, it's also recently passed the Economic Crime Bill, which is aimed at regulating some of the conduct of people in the UK. What I want to ask is, are there things we can do now to clean this whole practice up? I mean, David, you've you've looked at the American sort of situation and where, in fact, because they've had these sort of slaps, these lawsuits for a long time, they've actually passed legislation trying to make it more difficult for people to bring these cases. Is there anything that we can learn from that source? Oh, I think there certainly is. And it, uh, it's been followed in Australia in part and also in Canada. And the European Union are thinking of bringing in a similar directive. So we must certainly get in line with that. An important thing, I think, is to reduce the cost of this litigation and to be able to stop litigation in its tracks. And I think there's possibly a more radical thing that they might well want to look at because you get these cases uh, like Burgess and Belton where these enormous costs were run up and, and where the conduct was very oppressive all at the last moment when, of course, it was that much more difficult to get all the papers and all, all the evidence together. But one thing that does happen in all these cases is that the wretched lawyers get paid. And where the court thinks that the conduct is oppressive, they ought to disqualify fees. And the other thing I I would like to see the Foreign Affairs Committee do is to look at the whole industry, because it's not just lawyers. It's reputation managers who come in, and it's private investigators. And some of these guys behave very badly. They behave in a criminal way. I've had a a libel case recently, Hmm. where a 100 people were hacked. Their emails were hacked. All my family, all the clients, all their contacts, all the people who were investigating it, all the barristers in a particular chamber, and even, for good measure, a retired High Court judge. How did you find out you'd been hacked? Was somebody arrested? No, I found out because I was contacted by Thomson Reuter, who had been working with some people called Citizen Lab, who are the experts in this. And they had uncovered a company called Beltrox in India. They were hackers for her. And they told me that 
my name was the most hacked individual name they'd come across. So I've been looking into that for the last two years, Gosh. and the guys who've done this haven't heard the end of it. Do you think it's possible to craft legislation which would stop this or at least severely curtail it? It's very difficult to say you can't get any fees for something which, if you say you've done it in good faith, whatever that may mean, do you really think that a piece of legislation could be crafted to stop what you have just described while still allowing the sort of legitimate defence that people are allowed to mount against things which they think are libelous or defamatory? I think the fact that it's difficult doesn't mean that you shouldn't try. Obviously, there are going to be a lot of cases where you'll have to give the lawyers the benefit of a doubt because you can't go asking what legal conversations took place because that's clearly privileged and people are entitled to independent legal advice. But there comes a moment you eventually recognise the elephant and the court will just look at what happened, look at the letters, look at these ridiculous 17-page letters and look at the timing of it and the oppressive nature of the time limits. And yes, the courts can say it's oppressive. It may not happen very often, but at least if it's there, people will know that they face that sanction. I mean, one of the things I think is really important in, in what David is saying is that You know, I was involved in the case representing Bill Browder, which eventually led to the Magnitsky sanctions idea, which he's promulgated. That case was brought by a cop in Moscow who was on 15,000 US dollars a year, yet he seemed to be able to pay many hundreds of thousands of pounds in legal fees. Now, the sort of sanction that David is talking about seems to apply in that kind of case. You should be saying, how is it that a cop on $15,000 a year can afford £200,000 plus in legal fees? So what you're describing is an unexplained fee order. An unexplained wealth, <laughs> an unexplained fee order, yes, definitely. But that, that's very attractive in theory, but the unexplained wealth order, I think, has produced four prosecutions in the couple of years since it's been in, in force. And but it's I think proving that's about extremely will, difficult to get to the point where there's actually uh, a successful prosecution. Yeah, but I think that's about resource and willingness and priorities. So the resource is going to put in quite a lot of money. So we have had one infamous one because a particular woman was shopping and spending half a million at Harrods. But the issue, I think, is much more pervasive. So you've got to look at these oligarchs and look at these people who are coming, uh, politically exposed persons who are coming from non-democratic regimes where they've probably looted the state vaults in order to come up with the cash, and then we should be doing something about it. There's got to be some ethics going back to Robin Cook's ethical foreign policy. Oh. Where are we with, with ethical legal policy? We just don't seem to have it. You said that uh, we've got a new act, the Economic Crime Bill, which is now hmm. passed Economic into law, act. which will be the act very soon. How much is this going to help the problems that you have been explaining? It's not even going to be a sticking plaster over an artery pumping blood out by the gallon. It's um, So not terribly effective. Then. Not at all. Uh, I mean, the reality is that, you know, these cases are still going on. So, so what we've got is, 
essentially that a lot of this stuff was going on in the UK. The UK lawyers have got a bit chary about some of the nastier bits of what's going on. So what you've got is a front up in a respectable London with respectable law firms, but you've got the dirty doings being done out of what we might loosely term the global south, where regulation is optional and bribery is the course. And as a consequence of that, the people are not prepared to abide by the law. And you can only legislate for people who want to abide by the law or trying to. These people are deliberately flouting it. And that's why they're exploiting these jurisdictional twists. So if you want hacking, you can go to India and hire them, or you can go to to the Russian far north, and they've got specialist teams of hackers that you can just hire. That is what the deeply unpleasant and the ruthless do, because it suits their purpose. But if I was trying to cast some legislation which might deal with some of this, some of the things that you're saying are either beyond possibility of our jurisdiction or pretty woolly. Are there specific things that the government could do if it was minded to have another crack at the legislation? I think there are things, and I think one of them is unexplained wealth orders. The other is, of course, targeted sanctions. We're seeing some of that with Ukraine at the moment, but also the Magnitsky sanctions. The idea behind the Magnitsky sanctions was you would target people's ill-gotten gains where they had taken it through breaches of human rights or trust in a state. And There are many countries which now have the Magnitsky sanctions, thanks to Bill Browder and his campaign. But the question is, how many are actually enforcing them? And that's much more different because it's a bit like unexplained wealth orders. Nobody really wants to get their hands dirty with them. And it's only until you start using these tools and these levers that you will stop the abuses. Can I? I think it's time for a dumb question. So I'm going to ask one. One concept in English law which always struck me that gave a bit of flexibility to people to deal with litigation of this sort which is really designed to intimidate and shut people up was the concept of being a kind of vexatious litigant and you turn up with your 73,000 GDPR subject access requests, load of old cobblers that you're complaining about which is something which people have been talking about for years. Why don't judges just say... I don't want to hear this case. This is purely vexatious. You waited till two seconds before the statute of limitations and 17 oligarchs have turned up in a coach, deposited three million words on HarperCollins' doorstep. That's not good enough. That's not how it should be done. And you can't do it. Is this concept now totally outdated? And you would need to stop it with legislation because that sort of courtroom practice would no longer be sufficient to win the day? The real problem in this country compared, say, to America is that by the time you do that, the case has probably been running for a year, the bills are six or seven figures. And in America, the great thing is that the court look at these things right at the outset. And that's really what we need in this country, which 
could be the product of anti-slap legislation, that you get this before the court quickly and you encourage the, the judges to be much more inquiring and not to say, well, we can sort this all out at trial. Because when they're doing that, they're, they're giving the case to the oligarchs because the oligarchs have unlimited money and the publishers don't. But, you know, the judges are not stupid. Why don't they do this? They have the capacity to do it and say this is essentially vexatious. The sort of things that Jonathan was just describing. And I would add digging up stuff that the the litigants don't like, which has been in the public domain for years and has not, not caused any trouble. Suddenly, that is another reason to attack the uh, defendants. Surely the judges have sufficient confidence and clout to be able to say, this is not a real case. Well, a lot of these things would require changes in the law. That was certainly one of the problems with the oligarch case, because a lot of these allegations had been around for years and years and been published ages before. But we have this repetition rule, which enables people to say, I know it's been published before, but... And I didn't uh, object. But, but I didn't object. Now I am. I, uh, but I, <laughs> I, I am now objecting. Yeah. And equally for abuse of process, it's a very high fence, And I think there will have to be changes in the law to give judges greater power, because you're absolutely right. They're not stupid, and there's too much laissez-faire in all these things and say, well, let's sort it out at trial. Well, most of the judges have got the oligarch extension and had their children put through public school on the the expenses of oligarchs because they all represented them when they were at the bar. There's another aspect to this lawfare which I think is really concerning. And so what we're seeing is collateral attacks. So it may be that your client is saying something that you don't like and suddenly you see that you as the lawyer or you as the PR man are then under attack because we're seeing, for example, oligarchs... What do you mean? Can you give an example? Yeah, so you've got a situation where an oligarch is suing. He has his PR firm in play. The defendant usually has a, a litigation PR in place as well. And so they start firing subject access requests, which are sort of GDPR requests, which require you to get information from your PR people. And that is, of course, a huge problem because what they're looking for is incautious, defamatory comments in the emails between one another. And they're also looking to explore what information you have so that they can tailor their claim or their defence behind that so that they can push forward with the claims and causing the harassment that they do. So what can be done about that? Is that a case of... Well, I think it's an abuse of the subject access request process. At the moment, we never look at the purpose of a subject access request. It's just an absolute entitlement. But where they're used abusively, that's not a defence. And as a consequence, I think that that is an area which is very ripe for reform. Could I ask a silly question? If you are sanctioned, can you continue with a legal action in London? No, you can't. And in fact, a lot of the claims are collapsing. So recently we saw claims against Chris Steele, our former military attaché at the Moscow embassy. Proceedings against him were dismissed because they were being brought by someone who was sanctioned. 
And similarly, Fusion GPS and Glenn Simpson in Washington, D.C. on the other end of that, because between them... Fusion GPS? It's a private investigator, and they were the team, effectively, that put together the Trump dossier, which has now become quite infamous. But they were being sued by oligarchs in America, and those oligarchs have also been sanctioned. And as a consequence, the proceedings have now been dropped. So one of the questions that I think is foremost in my mind at the moment is... How many cases won by oligarchs through their intimidation who are now sanctioned, which essentially said they were corrupt, are now vulnerable to examination Ah, again? Excellent question. Because it seems to me that if you're a newspaper and you're at the wrong end of a libel suit because you called a man who's now sanctioned, corrupt, and having obtained his money through inappropriate means, probably the sanction is truth enough to reopen that case. In that situation... Could you see the estates of oligarchs in London being seized by, well, by infuriated, well, infuriated news editors who yeah. lost multi-million pound cases a few years ago? Well, there's a long Very and prospect. tradition of this. <laughs> so during the Libyan sanctions, the Libyans' assets were all put into government control. And of course, they had a duty to maintain the value of the assets. And so they were actually traded by the city on behalf of the government. And when the Libyans came back out, they suddenly had this enormous <laughs> nest egg, which, of course, is why Tony Blair was cozying up to Colonel Gaddafi, because he realised they got more money than they knew what to do with. And so... He gave some to the LSE. So, um, and, of course, what we did in the meantime was that we used to go along and get a licence from the Treasury and say, I've got this judgment against these Libyans and uh, could you please pay me out of their assets, which are frozen? And I do think that that is going to happen. So I think there's be a lot of law firms whose bills have not been paid by sanctioned entities or they cannot be paid. And so those people are going to have to go off to the Treasury and ask for their fees to be paid. So if the money is not there and all the assets are not in the Treasury have not been managed to have got hold of them, these poor lawyers may not get paid at all. Sad, isn't it? Um, oh, it's just be désolé. <laughs> but I think the point about it is that sanctions are intended to be put on quickly, effectively, and to garner things. And at the moment, Boris Johnson has given what might best be described as a good sporting chance to the oligarchs to get their money away and their jets and their boats away before the sanctions are imposed. And of course, what they've also done is they've transferred all their properties that were in their name into trusts in favour of other members of the family who are not sanctioned. There's this whole methodology which lawyers in London have been working on to avoid the impact of sanctions or ameliorate the impact of sanctions for oligarchs who are being sanctioned. But it's extremely unlikely that the pet oligarch is going to go out and pay Sue Grabbit and Run with the uh, money that he's got. Well, they can't pay, they can't because he can't can't pay any money. So it sounds to me as though uh, there's an element of rough justice here. But I think also it's going to rely on the government doing the decent thing and applying to the courts to set aside these sham transactions where, you know, the house before the day of sanctioning was put across into a family trust. And, you know, that's obviously to evade transactions. The same with planes and boats and... But uh, that is is doable, isn't it? That's eminently doable. You don't need legislation for that. No, I think they have to make applications. They have to put resource into it. And obviously it should be valuable because there's 
multi-millions at stake here, just needs the political will. And of course, for a party which is largely funded by oligarchs, or has been historically, the political will may or may not be there, and that would be quite a litmus test. So I like this idea of a kind of great pot of uh, wealth being available for people who've been shot up by these absurd cases in recent years. But what I want to do is just to ask you if you could both kind of think through what would be the top of your list if you were kind of the world king and (laughs) you were trying to think of ways in which you would bring this practice under control. Obviously, you can't kind of abolish libel law, sadly. But what would you do? What would be the top of your list? David, I'm going to come to you first. I think you've got to strengthen the intervention powers of judges, lower the abuse threshold, and I think make it more difficult for these people to bring actions. I think the threshold for bringing actions is far too low. And I think you've also got to look at certain areas of the law. You've got to strengthen public interest because that's a very weak defence at the moment because it involves about a year of putting together all the evidence as to how you compile the story. And I think the first thing you've got to look at is repetition. If people have allowed things to go unchallenged for ages, how can you assess whether it's all right to publish something or not? If it's been published in the Financial Times and other highly reputable sources, but they they come and say, well, we want to challenge it. But people have talked about this idea of the American system of libel, where there's got to be some sort of a malicious intent. Because clearly, it'd be harder to bring some of these cases if you had to show that people were being I think we malicious need, in, in their action. I think we need to borrow from the Americans a much wider definition of public interest. Clearly, everybody has a right to reputation. And in America, it is probably too difficult to bring a libel action. But where you are a public figure, there's got to be a higher, higher threshold. People should be entitled to discuss things freely, and they should be entitled to, to get things wrong. I mean, because after all, we live with the internet where people say all sorts of things, and it hasn't brought the world crumbling down. And if you're a public figure, you take the good, good with the bad. Clearly, you must have a right to protect your reputation. But I think if, if you are a public figure, the threshold's got to be that much higher before you can bring an action. Mark, what do you think? I mean, I would say plus one to everything that David said. And for many years, David and I have sought to stop foreigners coming here to launder their reputations and to obtain false vindications. So I think looking at foreigners coming here, it's very difficult to say that somebody has a British reputation which can be sullied by a British newspaper as opposed to a global reputation. Where are they centred? Where's the centre of their reputation? That's where they need to vindicate it. The difficulty with that comes, though, I have been involved in cases in as diverse jurisdictions as Russia, Iran, Samoa, New Zealand, Australia, South Africa, uh, India, Thailand and Malaysia. And one of the challenges with that is that the systems are not as robust in those jurisdictions. Very often they're based either on our common law system or the continental code civil. But the problem with it is that you're then in a very difficult situation. So I remember going into an Indonesian lawyer's office 
and I asked him what his fees would be to defend my client newspaper. And he said, a million dollars US. And I said, well, that seems a bit high. He said, well, that's 100,000 for me and 900 for the judge. And I went, hang on a second, we can't be doing that. And he then said, well, you'll lose the case. And, I, and he was looking at me slightly bemused. Anyway, I said, well, how much will we lose? And he said, $900,000. And when the judgment came down, it was $900,000. And so, Fantastic. you know, it's, it is a very, very different environment out there. So Couldn't be careful. A proper tariff system, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Could I just ask, we're getting to the end, I, ho- I think. Um, Keep going. Um, there have been several cases which have been resolved with judgments. Do you think the direction of travel is favourable to people who are trying to expose in the public interest? Or do you think that it is still getting worse? There was a libel case against a publication which I think sold six copies in the UK. And they lost the case, which seemed to me to be a gross miscarriage of justice. I think the answer is the law is still weighted against defendants, but I think there's a realisation, and I think the Foreign Affairs Committee in Parliament has done a tremendous job on that, because law reform has so much been a question of lawyers deciding how the law should change. This uh, 360-degree review of it is going to make a change, and I think people won't accept the present system and I think that I think there really is going to be a change but it will still probably be in favour of a claimant I think that's so deeply rooted in our culture we've talked a lot about lawfare and libel and free speech and privacy and things but I think there's another thing which is going on in the background here which is that the oligarchs choose London for the resolution of their commercial disputes. They do that because they know our judges are incorruptible and because they think they will get a fair outcome, which will then decide how they resolve the case as between themselves. I think the judiciary recognised that. So in a recent case between two oligarchs, one oligarch dealt a card off the bottom of the pack, which was that the contract that they had entered into was unlawful as a matter of law, and therefore it was against public policy to enforce it. And the judge said, no, 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 we don't need to trouble ourselves with matters of public policy. We'll tell you whether the contract is enforceable or not as a matter of ordinary law, and you can go away and then sort it all out yourselves. And so we have become this sort of offshore for oligarchs dispute resolution centre. It pays a lot of money to our city law firms. Butlers to the world. (laughs) That was A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins. Editing and production is by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. Join us again next week.